Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. She reached over and touched the zipper scar on his left shoulder. The women he was with in bed always seemed to do this. It was an ugly mark, and he never understood why they were drawn to touch it. You got shot? Yeah. That's even scarier. He hiked his shoulders. It was history he never really thought about anymore. You know, what I was trying to say before was that you're not like most cops I've known. You got too much of your humanity left. How'd that happen? He shook his shoulders again, like he didn't know. You okay, Bosch? He stubbed out his cigarette. Yeah, I'm fine. Why? I don't know. You know what that guy Marvin Gaye sang about, don't you? Before he got killed by his own dad. He sang about sexual healing. Said it's good for the soul. Something like that. Anyway, I believe it. Do you? I suppose. I think you need healing in your life, Bosch. That's the vibe I'm getting. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line pod and our Facebook and Instagram pages which are set up just for our fans. Also, join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content, where you will find more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Connolly. Now all that bullshit's out the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into chapters 25 through 29 of The Last Coyote. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we explore how, if you ignore the past, you jeopardize the future, shape chapters 21 through 24 of The Last Coyote. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters 25 through 29. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intentions to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens, so please proceed with caution. And now... The Thin Blue Line Podcast. Harry Bosch. It's time to open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so we can do an investigative summary on the information gathered thus far in this chapter. After convincing McKittrick that his visit was legitimate, Bosch learned that at the beginning of the investigation, McKittrick's senior partner, Eno, was called to Assistant DA's Conklin's office and was told that Fox was not involved with the murder and should not be investigated by the department. McKittrick also stated that the only way they could interview Fox was at Conklin's office. During the interview, McKittrick mused that it appeared that Conklin and Mattel seemed to be working for Fox. After following up on Fox's alibi, the investigation went nowhere and was left unsolved. McKittrick also informed Bosch 
to the fact that Fox was killed later while working for Conklin. And Eno was in charge of the investigation. And that bolstered the fact that Eno and Conklin had a illicit relationship. In order to gain entrance into the gated community where McKittrick lived, Bosch had pretended to be interested in a house for sale in the community and took a tour of the house briefly. He goes back to the house after leaving McKittrick's, and eventually he has a romantic encounter with the lady who owns the house, Jasmine Corrin. Bosch spends an extra day in Florida with Jasmine, and they reveal many personal secrets to each other. En route back to L.A., Bosch detours and stops at Las Vegas to visit the widow of Eno. During his visit, Bosch intimidates Eno's paramour into letting him take some of Eno's old files. From these files, Bosch discovers that Eno was receiving $1,000 a week through a dummy corporation. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters 25 through 29 of The Last Coyote is, what happens to people when they open their hearts? They get better. Hello. And welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. And today we start this episode off with Harry being held, just being held at gunpoint by McKittrick. But I think Harry realizes really quickly that McKittrick is an old crusty veteran. And he decides to stop with all the pretenses and tells uh, McKittrick the truth about himself. One of the themes that Michael Connolly has always captured with Harry from hell, even uh, the first uh, book, The Black Echo, was we see, quote-unquote, old habits die hard. And while Harry is telling the story, Jake doesn't interrupt Harry. He just lets him tell the story. It's very hard. Um, I don't think Michael Connolly actually gives it that much due, but the process of listening without interrupting it's a very hard thing to do. And it takes a lot of skills because what happens is when people start telling you a story and you want to get clarification and you don't want to write it down. And that's why sometimes it's good to have a partner. But, you know, so there's some things in your mind you got to say, okay, when he finishes, when he or she finishes, I'm going to go back because they said this and I want to have some clarifications on that. But not interrupting a person Doing an interview is very difficult and it takes a long time to master. Because I remember as a rookie, I used to jump in all the time. And then the you know, one time the uh, the defendant was like, well, God damn it, if you stop asking me questions, let me get the story out, I'll tell you everything. So um, again, that is a hard thing to do. And Michael Connolly lets us see that Jake still has those old instincts by letting Bosch tell the story. You know, we also see something that every guy, every investigator does this at times. And again, we warned, I I remember I was going back on some of my future podcasts, my old podcast, excuse me. And I see that my brother and I talked about this. You don't assume. And you have theories about an investigation, but you don't assume. And what brings that up is this portion of the book, from the book. He had flown out to Florida believing he was coming to see either a corrupt or stupid cop. He wasn't sure which he disliked more. But now he believed McKittrick was a man who was haunted by the memories and the demons of choices that were made badly many years ago. Bob thought that the pebble still had to come out of the shoe, and his own honesty was the best way to get it out. My goodness, I mean, this is why, don't we like Michael Conley with his descriptions? I mean, just, I'd never even thought of it this way, but, you know, the line, the pebble was in McKittrick's shoe, and Bosch's honesty was the best way to get it out. I, 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 I said it, I'm going to keep saying it throughout this whole Michael Conley Bosch series, is Michael Conley is like a python. And he set us up thinking that McKittrick was bad. 
and McKittrick had all these, you know, he must have been either a bad cop or a dirty cop. And we see now is actually he wasn't that way at all. And that's again, you started feeling the tentacles you know, starting to wrap around you. And I said, oh shit, here we go. Here go Michael Conley. He's about he's about to give it to us. And you know, we see McKittrick ask Bosch, why do you still stay? Doesn't sound like, you know, the the department really wants you there anymore. And Bosch said, Hey, you know, really much if he if they leave me alone, I probably would leave. But the mere fact they want me gone, I'm gonna stay. And I get that. I'm very stubborn. I did the same thing. You know, it's just this innate impulse of mine to fight the power, <laughs> you know, I fight the powers that be. And, you know, it's sometimes I, as a cop, you, at least I did, and I recognize what Harry is talking about here, is when so many people are pushing for you to do something, you want to push back because I know I don't like going along to get along. And I kind of got the same sense that Harry feels the same way. Don't you like how, and this always happens, McKittrick called Bosch kid, <laughs> you know, and Harry didn't take that as an offense. I don't care how much time I had on the department. There was always still guys. I mean, there's this one sergeant who had 40 freaking years, 40 plus years on the department. And he looked at me as a kid when I had 30 something years on the department. And it's kind of, and you only gave that kid name to younger people who you respected and like their skill set. And I think McKittrick sees that in Bosch here. And so McKittrick calls him kid. And I like that. Again, that's, again, just another example of Michael Connolly getting it right when it, when it comes to the culture of law enforcement. And we know we see McKittrick start right off the bat saying, quote, unquote, the case got dumped or, and or they took the case from us. And one thing he says right off the bat, him and um, Eno were just newly uh, made partners less than two or three months. And that's really important because it seems as though McKittrick noticed right off the bat that things weren't copacetic in the way that Eno was handling himself. And then when they got a call from Conklin, when Conklin just asked to see Eno, well, right off the bat, you know, the, my spider sense was, was going off. And it seems like McKittrick's was also. Because I can tell you right now, no fucking way would, if a U.S. attorney calls me up and says, hey, I need to see you, but you by yourself. Uh-uh. No way. It's either me and my partner or we won't go. And the mere fact that Eno went without McKittrick tells you there was something amiss right then and there. And to bring that point home from the book, Eno was in charge. Yeah, he was the man. You got to understand something. We had been a team for three to four months at this time. We weren't tight. And after this one, we would never be tight. I switched off after about a year. I went in for a transfer. They moved me to uh, Wilshire Dick's homicide table. Never had much to do with him after that. He never had much to do with me. Again, right there, just sits. it tells you that Eno understood that McKittrick was not that type of cop and vice versa. McKittrick said, Eno's not my type of cop. And that happens. I mean, you find out really quickly when you're partnered up with somebody what type of police officer they are. Again, are they loose and fast with the truth? Are they by the book or somewhere in between there? And if you're not comfortable with what they do in the manner in which they do it, you do what um, McKittrick did here. Again, he didn't go complain about, you know, like I said, after a whole, almost a whole fucking year, he had, he had to wait to get out of there. And so that right there tells you what type of cop Eno is and McKittrick. And they were like all in water. McKittrick further goes into how fucked up things were because he noticed that Eno wasn't putting everything into the murder book. And, you know, McKittrick goes into a story about Johnny Fox having an angel, quote unquote, looking out for him. And this is just a glimpse into the law enforcement world and law enforcement procedures. 
This happens all the time. I have sources. I protected them, especially for little petty things. But that came at a price because if a source told me beforehand that something was about to go down, then I was able to get in front of it and then talk to the arresting officers. But I always warn sources, don't waste your one phone call calling me where you're in jail because it's a wasted call. If you don't tell me beforehand something, before something went down, I really can't help you. And again, that had to be some very serious mitigating circumstances in which I would, quote unquote, be uh, reached out and stop a, um, a prosecution. But what a lot of people don't understand is being what we call a controlling officer of sources. I mean, okay, I'm being, I'm being politically correct. You know, we call them confidential sources, you know, uh, special employees. Yeah, CIs, you know, okay, I'm going to just cut to the bullshit snitches. You know, that's what it is. They're, they're snitches. And, and that's, that's such a derogatory description. And it comes with a lot of negative connotations. But I couldn't do my job without sources. Because sources are out there every day, all the time. And you treat these sources like, which they are, they're people. But they're not your friends. You know, you don't go out drinking with them. You, it's a strictly a business relationship. You don't meet them by yourselves because you learn from day one when you start running sources. And again, I don't know about every other department, but when I went through, you had to go to a class. Before, look, you, you couldn't take a piss when I was department without going to a class for a certified that you pass a class on whatever the investigative techniques you want to do. But so you go to an investigative class and they talk about running in um, sources. The first thing they tell you, the first admonishment they say is you are a get out of jail free card for any source. If you think that any source is your buddy, then you're stupid. <laughs> and I seen it happen over and over again that a lot of good cops got fucked up because they did not remember that. A snitch was snitch on their friends. And they damn sure would snitch on you. So when you don't abide by the rules and regulations and procedures that your department sets up, you are setting yourself up and you can only blame yourself. So if your department says you meet a source with two people, fuck it, meet a source with two people or don't meet them at all. If your department says, you know, whatever the rules your department sets out, follow them. It's not worth the shortcut because Sources know the rules, too. And when you don't follow your own rules, that gives them a crack to be able to use that against you just in case you go hard on them. Because it's going to happen, you know, not too many times, you know, because sources start to believe they can run you. And I've seen sources run officers before. And I'm sorry, I'm, you know, it, it, but this is actually important to what happens later on in the book. So I'm not really trying to give too much um. Well, hell, they actually, Harry talked about it here. You know, after they run down with, uh, after McKittrick runs down all the information that he got concerning Marjorie Lowe's homicide investigation, and then the fact that Johnny Fox gets killed later on while under the employment of um, Conklin, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see those two had, or Johnny Fox had his hooks in, as Harry said, had his hooks into Conklin. And it probably exactly happened exactly what I just explained it, is that Conklin did something that was unprofessional and Johnny Fox used it to his benefit. Now, one of the things that happened also was Eno had told McKittrick that Conklin wanted to just clear Fox because he had an a, a ironclad alibi and he believed him. And Eno said, you know, which is true, no U.S. attorney's office clears the suspect without the police interview. That's true. We, we as in law enforcement, would interview somebody, test their veracity, probe, and then follow up on their alibi before we clear them. No one's going to tell me without me interviewing a suspect that, oh, yeah, they're clear because they have an alibi. So that, that was pretty much on point. You know, sometimes, and I don't make a habit of this because this is not this type of podcast where I, I'm trying to um, look for the flaws in Michael Connolly's books. But I have to point them out to you when I see it. 
this is glaring, red light, sirens. This does not happen or should not happen. The fact that the attorney was, seems like he was running the source without a law enforcement person would never happen. At least I'd never seen it happen. And I'm going to explain to why this is important. Because anytime you interview a source, you should document it. And when you document it, those notes or that report goes into the source file. So why this is important, why you document it, and I'm going to get to the point why attorneys would never run a source. So I meet with a source, and the source said, hey, you know what? I was out with Billy Bob, and Billy Bob talked about um, he knew somebody who had guns, and, and the guy's name is Ted, and whatever, whatever. So I write that report up. And then if I act on that or give someone that information, and then it comes out of the court, say, where did the information come from? I say, well, my CI, here's my report. Then I'm going to have to testify about what the CI told me. Now, no attorney wants to go to court and testify as a witness about what a source said. It just doesn't happen. They don't want to do that. That's why you always have a law enforcement person there. So let's bring that example to this story here. Evidently, Eno McKittrick found out or had suspicions that Johnny Fox was being run as a source. The first thing that you should do or would have done is every department has a confidential source manager. And that's someone who maintains confidential sources, anonymity, and they keep records of the sources, all that kind of stuff. So the first thing that I would do, and I'm pretty sure any investigators listening to me, if I thought that a witness or a target of investigation or a suspect of a murder was a possibly a CI or, or confidential informant, I would go to the confidential informant supervisor and or manager and say, hey, look, I got this guy, Johnny Fox. If he's a CI, let me know because he might be um, a suspect in a murder investigation. So then the confidential source manager or organizer will run the names and say, yeah, uh, that's, um, that's Detective Lewis's uh, source over in Vice. So the first then I would go to Lewis and say, hey, look, um, you need to get in contact with your source. And Lewis said, what the fuck's going on? Oh, well, you know, we got information that your guy, Johnny Fox, he's our prime suspect right now. We want to talk to him and see where he was on night and day. And, you know, all the basic factual questions you want to ask a possible source. So let's say also that you run them through and the individual doesn't come back to a confidential source from your department. Now, Eno has said that Conklin said he, he's a source. Well, he has to be documented somewhere. So if he's not with my department, then what department? So you go to the attorney and say, hey, look, uh, what department is he documented with? And if it's FBI, DEA, or whatever federal agency, then you bring in their controlling officer. So when you're sitting there, no attorney, and in, again, just to reiterate, this is not a Bash Michael Connolly podcast. I'm not sure how much information he got when it comes to running controlling sources and or was it intentional because I'm letting you guys know red flags are jumping all over the place because no attorney <laughs> that I ever knew of will run a source without a law enforcement personnel there. So let's get back to the story. Now, one of the fucked up things and I mentioned it last I mentioned it last podcast. Michael Conley, like I told you, hands up, don't shoot. McKittrick confirmed that the murder weapon was the belt Bosch gave his mother, Marjorie Lowe. Again, when I read that in preparation for this podcast, I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Michael, goddamn. But again, information on the belt held fingerprints and McKittrick said, hey, the manner in which the, the prints were aligned with the belt, no one puts a belt on that way. It was definitely used for the murder. So now we know the murder weapon is the belt that uh, Harry Bosch gave his mother. And, you know, then we get up to the line, you know, after McKittrick gives her story, Harry says, so, uh, from the book, so what's your final take on it? My final take? Well, I never got over that meeting at Conklin's office. I guess you had to be there, but it just, it seems like the one that was in charge of the meeting was Fox. 
I mean, he was calling the shots. That right there is, again, glaring because no source runs meetings. But then, again, Michael was letting us know there's something going on with Conklin and Fox because usually a confidential source is trying to work off some type of beef. Now, we do have sources that, you know, just do it strictly for money. But the majority of our sources are working off some type of beef, as I say, or some type of arrest or some type of charge, and they're trying to get a reduction. And that just summed up all his suspicions on this whole murder, this whole investigation, and his partner for only a couple of months. And to bring this point home from the book, what do you think Eno got out of this? I, I don't know exactly. He might have just been trading favors, something like that. I'm not saying he got rich, but I think he got something out of the deal. You wouldn't be doing this for nothing. I just don't know what it was. And again, that's true. Like I said, you, uh, you're going to put your career, your reputation, you know, being under the thumb of a snitch for what? Not, you know, no one's going to do it. So it's inferred that Eno was getting something out of Johnny Fox's arrangement with Conklin. One of the things that Harry should feel good about, and not just him, but Marjorie Lowe's death and lack of true investigations to try to close it, weigh not just on Harry, but also McKittrick. And just to finish up the conversation between Bosch and McKittrick, I like this passage from the book. Jake, when you pulled that gun on me, who do you think I was? McKittrick didn't say anything as he neatly folded the plastic bags and put them back in the cooler. When he straightened up, he looked at Bosch. I don't know. All I knew, I thought I might have to take you out here and dump you here like I did those sandwiches. Seems like I've been hiding out here all my life, waiting for them to send somebody. You think they go that far over time and distance? I don't have any idea. The more time goes by, the more I doubt it. But old habits die hard. I always keep that gun nearby. Doesn't matter most of the time. I don't remember why. So really, right here in this passage, Jake is letting us know how serious it was about what was going on with Margie Lowe. Now, if they killed Johnny Fox and Eno's in on it, the only other person who might have some type of knowledge of what's going on is uh, McKittrick, Jake McKittrick. So he left L.A., went out Florida, and remember, he wasn't easy to find. He was off the grid. So after Bosch leaves, he does something, which, again, all good investigators do. From the book, he began formulating a theory. For Bosch, this is one of the most important components of homicide investigations. Take the facts, shake them down into a hypothesis. The key was not to become beholden to any one theory. Theories change, and you have to change with them. Again, I wouldn't just say through homicide investigation. That's any investigations. You know, as soon as you get new information, you start all over again. This is what I did. If after you've been working the case for a while, let me just say I've been working the case for a month, and after a month, as new information go, comes in, you go back to your investigation and see how that information fits into with what you already have. And then... If your theory changes, you got to change with it. You cannot try to make the facts fit your theory. Your theory has to fit the facts. And that brings us to this episode's question of the day. And the question of the day for The Last Coyote chapters 25 through 29 is as followed. While spending the night with Jasmine, she asked Harry, Bosch, what's the worst thing you ever done to yourself? In response, Bosch explains he didn't put up a fight to prevent a lover from leaving. Question, if Bosch would have put up a quote-unquote fight concerning Sylvia's leaving, that would persuade her to stay. Yes, everyone wants to be wanted, or no, he has too much baggage. And, you know, I, when I first, again, I put these um, 
as I said before, I put these questions up to be provocative and get people talking and get engaged. But it's almost a 50-50 split. And as of this podcast, 45% of you said, yes, everybody wants to be wanted. While 55% of you said, no, he has too much baggage. Me, I actually go to side with the 45%. You know, based on my limited experience of women, <laughs> and again, I'm not some Casanova, but I think people want to be wanted, even though Harry has baggage. And again, I'm thinking about the situation with Sylvia and Harry, because Sylvia inferred that she had baggage also. But the fact is that she just wanted to be included. And I think if Harry would have put up a little bit more fight opposed to just letting her go, I think that would have persuaded her to stay. Because if you remember from The Concrete Blonde, the last sentence in the book, Harry and Sylvia were together. And they were talking about going out to the uh, a resort. And so Sylvia said something to the fact, oh, you just knew I was going to come back. And he said, no, I hoped. And I think those type of overtures would have persuaded Sylvia to stay. So thanks again for participating in the question of the days. And thanks a lot for everyone's engagement in your comments. And I feel like I'm rambling, so let's get back to hitting the streets. And as we return from the question of the day, we see Harry contemplating going to meet Jasmine. You know, now Jasmine is resonating in his head. He goes back to her house. And he sits there, you know, just watching the house. And, you know, Jasmine's stock, for me, rose a lot. Because she comes out the house, and then she gets, you know, goes, quote, unquote, towards her car. But then she turns around, and she knocks on the window. And she confronts Bosch, like, what are you doing? And, again, for me, I like the fact that she's so forward. And she's aggressive, and she is not afraid to step to Bosch. And as I said throughout plenty podcasts and it should be now in our culture here at the Thin Blue Line podcast. Michael Conley is not afraid to address certain social ills. And he makes a reference to LAPD's problems in the 90s through Jasmine. Again, this is his fourth book and there's always something that's going on. And again, that's just, this is what I think we as a society, I'm going to get up on my soapbox here. I like the way Michael Connolly addressed this, addressed certain problems with the police. And here, Michael Connolly holds the police accountable by mentioning again in the book about LAPD having the problems. Because again, he could not address it at all. He could gloss over it. But is that really helping people when you don't, when you don't address a problem? But he's not throwing LAPD under the bus either. Like, these are all bad guys and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. He, he makes mention, again, this is the fourth book, and he's still making mention of social unrest that was happening back then in the 90s. And I like the way that he does it. And I think of it as a blueprint. Hold us accountable, but don't throw us out with the bad water. Don't throw the baby out with the bad water. You know, I love also this one line from the book. Bosch sensed a loneliness about her, a mystery of some sort. Behind her pretty face, those were scars. The kind that couldn't be seen. You know, I think we have a sense of the type of women that Harry is drawn to. Almost a mirror of himself. This is the third book where Michael Connolly brings in women with life scars. You know, first it was Eleanor Wish in The Black Echo. Then we had Sylvia in The Black Ice in, in finishing up with The Concrete Blonde. Now we have Jasmine. And so now we see the type of women that Harry is really attracted to. And again, it's just a mirror of himself. And another line I like from the book was when Jasmine asked Bosch that, you know, he's not like most cops that she knows, that he had too much of himself left. And I understand that. If you guys don't understand what she meant by Harry had too much of himself left. It is very easy to become jaded and cynical in this 
um, profession I chose for damn near 30 years. It really is. To protect yourself, you can really get callous around your heart. And you can then start seeing the us versus them and not being, under, not being able to navigate the gray. Because it's easier to protect yourself to think of everyone else as an enemy. But again, you do yourself and the community you're supposed to protect and serve a disservice. And I feel blessed and lucky that I was able to maintain myself throughout 30 years. I mean, listen, I mean, you don't believe me? I'm doing a podcast about law enforcement and Michael Connolly. I still read his books. So if I was really jaded, and again, Michael Connolly is not a, the police are virtuous and they never do wrong type of author. He gives it to us real. And I'm able to take that realness, you know, warts and all, and still want to participate in the police culture. So that's what I got, that Harry had a sense of himself still. He's not jaded. Everything's not black or white. And it was an us versus them type of relationship when it comes to the police and community. All right, now, here's the part that I said it before in other podcasts, especially when Michael goes into the romance with um, Eleanor Wish back in the Black Black Echo. I honestly believe that Michael Connolly probably wrote some of those steamy romance novels because the next portion of the book, which I am not going to go into, is a very intimate, very sensual, very romantic encounter between Jasmine and uh, Harry. But, you know, what brings it home, what brings it home is that she talks about sexual healing. And I think that will encapsulate the activities (laughs) between um, Harry and uh, Jasmine. So both of them seem like they needed some Marvin Gaye sexual healing, and I'm going to leave it like that. And then we see after we're making love, again, this whole idea of old habits die hard. So after the next day, Bosch wakes up and he started to look around um, her apartment. And inside the apartment, Bosch finds portraits, very dark portraits that Jasmine had um, painted. And one of them looked like it was someone about to jump off a bridge. And Jasmine catches him. And she's like, what are you doing? This, this door was locked. He said, no, 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 the door wasn't locked. He says, why are you in here? And he just you know, put his hands up and said, look, old habits die hard. I'm a cop. And cops, we're nosy. And when, when something triggers our spider senses, a lot of cops, we, we just can't let it go. And that will always cause so many issues at home, especially for me, because I was always told, Phil, could you please turn off being a, a police officer when you come home? And it's really difficult. It's really difficult. Heck, sometimes when I was talking to my children, it went, I wasn't just asking them to turn into interrogations. And it's difficult. Now, I, I laugh about it. Early on in my police career, it was very hard. But as you get older, more mature, it's easier to do. But here we see, again, why I do this podcast, why I'm sharing this information with you guys, is this shows the world of police officers really well. Michael Colley captures it here. And to harken back to a little bit of the question of the day, Bosch actually had two answers when it came to what's the worst thing he ever done to himself. And he gives us a glimpse of when he was at McLaren, um, he took another kid's shoes. Now, remember, Bosch was a victim of a bullying and a guy taking his stuff, his shoes, as a matter of fact. And we found that out through the lost chapters of The Last Coyote. And again, I tell everyone, you, need, you guys need to go read that because there's a lot of nuggets in that lost chapters. And so Bosch says to Jasmine, well, I actually did that to somebody else myself. I couldn't even fit the shoes, but I became something that someone did to me. And actually that, what they say, abused kids turn out to be abusers themselves when they get older. And But the fact that Bosch can reflect on that and feel remorse about it, shows us the type of person, what type of man he actually is, because it would be easy to say, well, someone did it to me, so I'm doing it to somebody else. The hard thing to do is to face hard truths. And hard truths is that 
even though it was done to me, it was wrong for me to do it to somebody else. So during this period, Bosch again wakes up, but then he goes in, brushes his teeth with her toothbrush. Yuck. <laughs> like, uh, right? Isn't that yuck? <laughs> so then we have Bosch and Jasmine agreeing to spend another day together and driving to other parts of Florida. But I like this portion of the book. If you don't show your pains to anybody, how do you make a living? It was far out of left field. We had been thinking about that all day. I have money for my father, even before he died. It's not a lot, but I don't need a lot. It's enough. If I don't feel the need to sell my work when it's finished, then as I'm doing it, it won't be compromised. It will be pure. It sounded like Tabash, a convenient way of explaining away the fear of exposing oneself. But he let it go. She didn't. Are you always a cop? Always asking questions? No. Only when I care about somebody. And that, even though it was levity, that's actually true. You know, um, you ask questions to feel comfortable. And the more you feel comfortable, the more you trust. The more you trust, the more you give of yourself. And as a cop, we know the dark side of society. And you want to somehow reassure yourself that the person you're opening up to is worthy and can be trusted. Hey, did you guys also like that joke that Michael Connolly put in here that Jasmine and Bosch are talking and she says, hey, Harry, you know, I haven't been with a lot of men in my life. And Harry didn't respond. And he said he didn't really know what the proper response was. So she says, what about you? And he couldn't just resist being a jokester. He says, I haven't been with a lot of men either. In fact, none. As far as I know, <laughs> you know, I, I like Michael Conley just seems to bring the levity in certain situations that you never expect to come. And Bosch is a jokester at heart. You know, as I, I told you in the last podcast, you know, cops, we play practical jokes on each other all the time. And sometimes there's a lot of dark humor along with it. It's again, it's a coping mechanism. But again, I like how Michael Conley shows that Bosch is not some dark-hearted, cold guy. He enjoys humor just like everyone else. And, you know, we see Jasmine ask Bosch about using his gun and, you know, has he ever taken a life? When you're in social settings, I get asked that question all the time. And, you know, you can see it coming a mile away. You know, people want to know, you know, have you used your gun? Have you had to kill somebody before? And I usually just, you know, pivot and go to something else. I'm like, well, you know, I'm not really here at this party to talk about that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm enjoying myself. And then usually most people, especially if I don't know you, I'm not really going to get into the exploits of what happened to me on a department and such a dramatic uh, event if I had to use my gun and or kill somebody. But cops get asked that question all the time. And so then we see Bosch, is at the end of his rope, but he's always working, always trying to figure out how can he get some information. And before, when he left McKittrick's home, he was thinking he was at the end of the rope. He was thinking McKittrick really didn't point the finger at anyone else, and I really can't follow up um, on this investigation anymore. But he did have an idea. He said, well, I know Eno's dead, but maybe there's something there at his house. Maybe he has some files. And all that kind of stuff. And again, remember, I told you this back in other podcasts. And even early on in my career, investigators, we took files home all the time. I had duplicate files all the time. And especially before the computer age where we put everything, you know, since then, all our investigation in the computer. So if most of the time you just had a investigative file folder with all your case jacket and you, you kept it with you, because like I said, I did. And I'm just re reiterating things I said on prior podcasts. Just like Harry, before um, our department changed their policy, I would bring my case files home and I would spread them out on the table. And again, I would just go over things over and over again, trying to find an angle and to solve the crime. So we're talking back in the 90s. 
and before. And those habits, again, die hard. Some things die hard. And so it really wasn't a bad leap to, for Harry to then go to Eno's widow. So Eno's widow lives in Las Vegas. So en route back to Los Angeles from Jasmine and Florida, he detours and goes to Los Angeles. And Bosch, upon arrival, Bosch uses guile and bluffing when it comes to interviewing Eno's quote-unquote sister-in-law, which we then found out was Eno's paramour. But remember, Harry shows up, flashes his badge, and gains entry to the place, bluffed the lady, used a lot of guile to get information and files that he subsequently found valuable. And by using bluffing, Bosch was able to get information about Eno's safety deposit box. And also by bluffing, he was also able to find missing files concerning his mother. And he also found out with some bank statements. Again, I was a financial investigator, and my, my mantra, just like everything else, follow the money. And one of the bank statements showed that Eno was getting a direct deposit monthly for $1,000 and then transferring it to a different account. <laughs> so let me stop there. Let me stop there. I was a money laundering expert. And I can tell you right now, that's one of the oldest and dumbest money laundering schemes that criminals still do today. When I first went to investigative class for money laundering, they would give us as the 101 easiest money laundering scheme to prove was a scenario just like what Eno did. He got some type of person to deposit $1,000 a month on the, on the first of the month, and then on the 15th of the month, he then transferred the money, that $1,000, to another corporation and another bank account. I don't know why criminals do it, but you would be amazed. Because right now, if you listen to my voice, you're like, I know criminals actually do that. They really don't do that. I'm telling you, they do. And that gets us to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts Person. And my Everyone Counts or No One Counts Person for The Last Coyote, chapters 25 through 29, is Jasmine Corrin. Now, I think I've already telegraphed it so far through this podcast today, is that I like Jasmine for what she represents, not just for what she did with Harry. Like I said in prior podcasts, Jasmine or the Jasmine type does not need to be rescued. And she has scars and she needed sexual healing like Harry did. But I love how she was direct and she called Harry out on a couple of different uh, occasions. But But she still was confident in herself. Like when... You know, she had her own condoms in her, her drawer and she, you know, pushed back on Harry about, is he always a, a cop at heart? Does he, always ask, uh, does he always ask so many questions? So this type of person also what Michael Conley put in this book right now, to me, is just a mirror of Harry himself. So again, my everyone counts or no one counts person for this episode of The Last Coyote is Jasmine Corrin.
This concludes chapters 25 through 29 review of The Last Coyote. Hey, hey guys, thanks again for being there with me, supporting me on this podcast, on this journey together that we're having. I just want you guys to know I'm having a phenomenal time doing it. And I know things have been kind of slow for the last two podcasts, but they were so important to understand the person, Harry Bosch. So I couldn't glaze over it. And I told you I was struggling with a lot of his interaction with Dr. Noho. But things start to pick up, as Michael Conley is apt to do. Again, I told you, you know, he's like a python, the snake that coils around you. You know, we were lulled into this nice romantic scene with Jasmine. And if you are into Michael Conley's books, even right now, if you're just pacing yourself along with me, this is what he does. So... Trust me, things pick up really fast on the next couple chapters. And while you're supporting me, please don't forget you can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please continue to give us five stars or more. And also, as I said, I thanks for the comments. You guys are throwing a lot of good comments out there and a lot of good questions. Keep sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Because I'm telling you, we're growing, and as we grow, we grow together, and it's not because of me, it's because of you. And thank you so much for doing that. Please avail yourself to the website, uh, www.thethinbluelinepod.com, where you will find more investigative content concerning Michael Conley and Harry Bosch. I'm always keeping that website fresh and up-to-date. I'm trying to streamline it so that you guys, when you need some information, you can go straight there. And, you know, just like my investigative file folders I told you before, I'm always trying to make it tight and efficient, but more accessible to you guys. So, yeah, please go to the website. So next up on the Thin Blue Line, we will continue our deep dive into The Last Coyote, chapters 30 through 33. I'm Philip Parker. And I'm 10-7 for the remainder. <laughs>